Tychicus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him, sent to him, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Metamax, who is there who does not know that the, the city of, of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our gods. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against, against someone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. I have never been caught in the midst of a riot. You know, I, I look at uh, what's going on in Cairo. I, mean, I don't know if any of you have been watching what's going on in Egypt, but there's just a massive riot that is taking place there. And people are just being caught up into this, this whole movement and this, this angry mob. I have never been brought into any kind of riot whatsoever, much less been the actual target of a riot. And I think it's safe to say that no one else here has ever experienced such a thing either. I don't know if any of you have ever read anything about Hudson and uh, Maria Taylor. They were one of the, the first missionaries to go into China. And they have had some harrowing experiences when they were one of the first missionaries to go into China. They had an experience when an angry drunk mob attacked their house and tried to set fire to it. That does not sound enjoyable in the least bit. But somehow, God miraculously spared them and their children permanently from injury and death. Although Maria, when she was, she was six months pregnant at this point, jumped out of the second story window to escape. But yet God preserved her. If you've never read this story, read about Hudson Taylor. Read about it. Our, our text this morning records a story of a riot that took place in, in Ephesus and was instigated after Paul and his infant church started sharing the gospel. The gospel was shared and, and things started to happen. And although Paul was not at the center of all this action, it must have been for him a frightening ordeal, scared to death 
as the, it talks about the whole city was moved into action. The whole city. Paul may have been even referring to this experience as he talked to the Corinthians about how he even fought off wild beasts. That's how he described what was going on. It was like dealing with wild beasts. He was probably referring to it when he said this from 2 Corinthians 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we even despaired even our life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death with ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. He was scared even to the point of death. But he goes on to say this about this God who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we set our hope. Most of us have never had to face this kind of opposition because of our faith. Hopefully we never will. I pray that would never be the case in our lifetime or our children's lifetime or our grandchildren's lifetime that we face such a great opposition because of our faith. But we should not be taken by surprise if it does happen. Even if we live in the United States of America and we have certain constitutional rights, we should not be surprised if we are persecuted because of our faith. Christians in other countries have suffered, suffered terribly because of their faith. And we need to be ready when the time does come. Luke presents two different things that seem to be unfolding here. First, he is, he's trying to present a logical uh, apologetic that the Christian faith is a legitimate religion. And it's not at odds with the Roman law. Luke is trying to lay this out in this section that's saying, listen, this is true. This is a legitimate religion. It's not in opposition to the Roman laws. We're not breaking the laws. We are being faithful. We are being faithful. Second, Luke's second purpose for including this incident was to show that spiritually the only thing that heathenism can do against Paul and the Christian faith is to basically shout itself hoarse. For hours and hours and hours, what did they do? Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. For hours and hours. And all it did was shout itself forth. Unbelievers opposed the gospel because Satan has blinded their minds and the gospel confronts their sin. Satan's fury against the church is great. The pagan religions are impotent. They're empty. God, God's sovereign providence protects his church. Protects his church, even in the face of fierce opposition. So here's our theme for the morning. Throw that out for me later. People oppose the gospel because Satan has blinded them and the gospel confronts their sin. But God rules. That's the reality. 
And I know that in a room this size, some of you go, amen to that first section. I know exactly what this is talking about. That I, I oppose the gospel because I was totally blind. And in fact, there were times in my life when I was angry about the gospel, angry against Christians, because my very sin was confronted. I was ticked off. And I cannot explain why other than there was a blindness. But when my eyes were opened up, Chains were set free. I was alive in Christ. I am a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This disturbance was not just against Paul personally, but against the way. And that was the, the early designation for the church. It's it points to Christianity as a way of life and to the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. The first lesson for us to note is this. When the church effectively spreads the gospel, Satan will arouse opposition. It's a proven fact. And you might wonder, why do people oppose Christians? Really, why do they oppose Christians? Christians are good, they care for their neighbors, they're really loving, and generally, unless you get into some really uber-conservative folks, they're generally really loving and caring and concerned about their community, about their world. They're just really kind people. They're good workers on the job. They're good citizens. Why such intense opposition toward Christianity? Christians. Why? The answer is that there is an evil spiritual being and nobody really likes to talk about him or give him a name because we've never sat down and shook hands with him. But his name is Satan. The devil. Most, most times in our evangelical world, our Christian world, we, we avoid even the talk of Satan, right? I've never met him, but okay, I get that there's something evil, maybe a little cold, a little eerie, but he's a person? Absolutely. He is a person. And listen, here's the deal. Paul explained to this Ephesian church much later on in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a devil. There is a spiritual being called Satan who opposes God himself. It's no coincidence that this riot took place after the professing believers confessed their secret sins and openly demonstrated their repentance by burning their books of sorcery. We talked about last week or a couple weeks ago, how it would have cost millions and millions of dollars to replace these books. But these people, because they were so convicted by the gospel, they were so changed and transformed that they did not want to send it out. They didn't want to give it, to, give it away. They didn't want to sell it to other people. They brought it and they burned their books that blinded their eyes. And as a result of this cleansing, Night 
chapter 19, verse 20, it says, The word of the Lord continued to increase, prevail mightily. Because of their confession of faith and their faithfulness to God, God's work increased and it prevailed mightily. And whenever the church, and I'm going to talk about Missio Dei Church, whenever the church repents of her sin and the word of God grows mightily and it prevails, Satan will not sit around idly wringing his hands. He's not going to go, oh, damn, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do? just sit and see if anything takes place. He will launch an attack. That's a point. And that's why we're, we're calling the church, as we do VBS, to be praying for our vacation Bible school. This, the fact that our church is moving forward into this world, it is a threat. And if we don't sense any opposition to the enemy, from the enemy, we should examine ourselves to determine whether or not we are doing anything significant enough to oppose. Let me say that again. If we don't sense any opposition from the enemy, any opposition from Satan, in our lives, we should examine ourselves. We should examine our marriages. We should examine the way of our life. We should examine our faith to determine whether or not we are doing anything significant enough to oppose? Are you living in light of the gospel in such a way that it is bringing to light sin in your life that you are forced out of love for God to repent and turn the other way? And therefore living in new life. The power of the Ephesian church was not primarily political here, but spiritual. They hadn't picketed the temple of Artemis to try to get it to shut down. We don't read anything like that, of them walking around with picket signs. They hadn't organized rallies or tried to get legislation passed to stop the correct practices that were going on. Does it sound much like the American church today? Man, one of the first things that we're going to do is we are going to write our congressmen, we are going to pick it, we're going to show up at those abortion places, and we're going to be one of those angry people that walk around, maybe in silence. Instead, they did something very different. The reality is, if they had done that, the city clerk would not have been speaking so favorably about them. Rather, what did they do? They Proclaim the gospel in Ephesus and the outlying area. And they demonstrated the power of the gospel through their repentance. So it was so many that were coming underneath this transforming power of the gospel that they were now threatening the businesses of the idol makers. The church was faithfully proclaiming the gospel to each and every person they came in contact with. So that people's lives were being confronted with the gospel and automatically they repented of their sins and turned to Jesus instead. It was done in such mass that it threatened the idol-making business. Now hear me. I can clearly say this. 
there is a proper place for the church to use political means to accomplish spiritual goals. At times, Paul even used his Roman citizenship, right? We've seen that before to secure his protection for the church and for himself. We, we even see Luther, we see Calvin, we see Zwingli, all use, they all use political power as part of their overall strategy to bring about the Reformation. But our main focus as a church, hear me, should be to demonstrate with our godly lives the truth of the gospel and to proclaim the gospel verbally. That is what we are called to be about. We are called to demonstrate with our godly lives the truth of the gospel. That it's actually true for me. It's actually true for you. And to actually verbally share this news. As people get saved, here's a guarantee. As people get saved, the culture changes. Satan will not allow that to happen without the story about opposition. But why do people oppose the gospel? Here's your second second paragraph. People oppose the gospel because Satan blinds their minds and the gospel confronts their sinful lifestyle. This is kind of a time where I would love to just probably not be wise for time's sake. But I would love to hear testimonies of how this is true. Of how Satan has blinded your eyes and confronted with your confronted your sinful lifestyles. Maybe I will. So impressed upon me. The reality is that people oppose us because Satan does blind their minds to the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the power of Christ, the perfections of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul refers to how Christ delivers us from the domain of darkness and transforms us, or transfers us to the kingdom of light, right? Those who do not know Christ do not have the capacity to accept or understand the things of the Spirit of God because they... These things are to be spiritually discerned. Why else would people worship such a grotesque statue of a multi-breasted woman? That's who Artemis was. She was a multi... If you look at the, the pictures of this, this idol, Artemis of the Ephesians, she was a multi-breasted goddess. The legend is that this, this Artemis fell down from Zeus or Jupiter and probably a meteorite fell to the earth that looked something like a multi-breasted woman. The superstitious people thought that this must be a symbol of fertility. And so woman, so women would invoke her health in childhood. The temple of Artemis in, in Ephesus was one of the seven 
wonders of the ancient world. People would flock from all over the world, all over the Roman Empire, to come and worship Artemis. It was one of the seven biggest tourist traps that Satan used. The girls who served the temple, dressed in short skirts and one bare breast. The annual festival in honor of Artemis, which, which would be a mild case of Mardi Gras, drew in a huge amount of business to the area, including the buyers of these small statues. These silversmiths had heard of and probably seen the evidence of the miracles that God was doing through Paul in Ephesus. And you would think that they would, it would force them to stop and say, what are we doing? We are, we are on the wrong track. Look at what this God, look at what this God is doing. What are we doing here? But instead, instead, what happened? Sin and Satan blinded these people so that they could not see how irrational they were. Demetrius and all the other silversmiths knew that Paul was saying that these gods are nothing but things made with hands. Nothing but hands. That makes me think that it's fairly self-evident that if someone made it, it isn't a god, right? Man, give me some Play-Doh and work something up with Play-Doh. And I, if I could sell it and make money, people would come into my booth and say, Are you serious? You made that with Play-Doh? You want me to worship that? You made it with your hands. People were blind. Satan blinded their minds. When we talk about talk to people about Jesus Christ, we should try to be as clear as possible as we can. We should be logical. We should be persuasive. But the bottom line is, and hear this: if God Himself does not shine into a person's heart with the light of Christ, he or she will not respond to the gospel. You might as well try to get a blind man to appreciate the finer uh, points of a beautiful picture than to try to get an unbeliever to understand the gospel. And so, as you share the gospel, pray that God, God himself, would grant sight to blind men. People also oppose the gospel for this reason, because it confronts their sinful lifestyles. Both the message of the gospel and the lives of people who believe the gospel confront sinners with their sin. The message, is, the message necessarily confronts people with their sin, because if people are not sinners, they have no need for a Savior, right? A gospel... A gospel that presents that Jesus as the way to a happier life, but dodges the issue of sin, is no gospel at all. If you hear a gospel presentation that just says, man, just, just receive Jesus and you can have a better life, uh, very quickly show them uh, the life of Paul. One of persecution of shipwreck, of being 
thrown out to sea. That is no gospel at all. The Bible plainly indicts every one of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. And while some of us are better than others when we compare ourselves with others, you know, we all have that kind of habit, that, that way, comparing each other, you know, well, I'm not quite as bad as Bob Chapel. Probably not. No one quite is. Or I'm not quite as bad as Pat Myers, you know, hopefully. We were good at those kind of comparison games. None of us, none of us, no one here, from new believer to myself, no one has perfectly obeyed God's holy standards. None of us. All of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. By our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we have repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly rebelled against God as our, as our rightful Lord, our rightful Savior. We have failed to love Him with our total being as He rightly deserves. All of us fail. Before people can appreciate and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for sinners and that He offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift, they must hear the bad news about their sins. The good news is only good news after we hear about the bad news. But not only does the message confront sinners, also the lives of those who believe the gospel confront sinners. If everyone is in the dark, doing things that they know they should not be doing, and some guy walks into a bright light, it exposes their deeds. If people who are used to getting drunk and sleeping around with temple prostitutes at the temple of Artemis suddenly stop doing that because they've trusted in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins, it threatens those who still do those things. Some of you understand that. Your, your total circle of people have changed because you have been confronted with the good news of Jesus Christ. You've been confronted by your sin. You've repented of your sin. And people are now repelled because of your lifestyle. Because you're living in light of the gospel. No one, no one, no one can any longer compare themselves with these people because they make them look bad. So either they need to accuse them of hypocrisy or spread false rumors or discredit their behavior. Perhaps you've experienced this. Demetrius and his fellow workers should have asked, is the message that Paul is proclaiming true? If it is, we are in big trouble with the creator of the universe. Because We've not only worshipped this stupid idol, but we've helped thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of others do the same. If Paul's message is true, we need to find another line of work. But Paul, Paul argues in Romans 1 that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness and end up in idolatry. Worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry in its broadest sense is devotion to anything other than the living and true God. 
I don't see any of you walking around with a little silver idol in your pocket or sitting on your, your mantle at home and you go in and do your kind of prayer, your little mantra kind of thing. I don't see any of us. We've kind of evolved beyond that, right? We look back at those people and go, man, they are really idiots. Are you serious? They're worshiping these little silver idols? Those guys, they're probably cavemen, right? But the reality is you can engage in idolatry without statues. It is idolatry to be more devoted to your job and financial success than you are to God and his kingdom. Devotion to sensual pleasure through pornography or immorality is a form of idolatry. The pursuit may be legitimate in balance, such as a hobby or a sport, but can become an idol when a person devotes an inordinate, inordinate amount of time or money to it. Even your good hobbies can become your idols. Sitting in front of a TV set for two hours or more every day can be guilty right here. Or playing computer games for hours and hours and hours and hours, but not having enough time to spend with the living God and to serve Him is absolute idolatry. When I hear young men and young women, old men, old women, middle-aged men and women say, I just don't have the time. I just, I just, my day is so busy. I just want to say, really? What is primary? What are you worshiping? I just, I can't do anything. I can't do this. I, I'm just not connecting with God. Why? What thing, what person are you worshiping? First, Demetrius plainly states that his concern is that, is that Paul's message was cutting into the profit margin. That, that was his first thing. That, that was his bottom line. But then he makes it sound a little bit less self-serving by stating that their way of life built around this famous temple of Artemis was in jeopardy. And if people stopped flocking to this temple, it would disrupt the whole society. The entire economy would be affected. Inns and restaurants would lose their businesses. Merchants who sold their goods and wares and that the tourists would be hunting for would be shutting down. And the familiar customs and the festivals associated with the worship of Artemis would come to an end. Perhaps even the great goddess whom the whole world worshipped would be dethroned from her magnificence. This ripped up all the craftsmen into such a rage. And on their way to a theater, which is still standing today, seated about 24,000 people. They somehow grabbed Gaius and Articacus, whom they recognized as being associated by Paul, and only by God's gracious providence were they spared from being killed. 25,000 people. Paul would have surely been killed if he would have went into there. But yet God protected his people, and no one got hurt. So here's the third point. 
God is sovereign to protect his church. God is sovereign to protect his church against the opposition of sin. Even in situations where missionaries have gotten killed, we know that God sovereignly protects his church. Even though we have sent financially and prayerfully sent John and Missy Camiola to Joss, Nigeria, which is at the crossroads of the Muslim and Christian world colliding in two places in Nigeria, we know that God sovereignly protects his church. Even though their lives may be lost at the hands of unbelievers, God still protects his church. Satan is unleashed and can go only as far as God will allow him. And as you know, on earlier occasions, Paul has been stoned, he has been beaten to an inch of his life, and here again, he was spared. But whatever happens, we can always know that God is never asleep, never asleep on the job when it comes to watching over his servants. His providential care and direction are ours, even when the enemy is ferociously attacking us. We see God's sovereign providence in, in verse 21 where Paul lays out his plans for the future of ministry. Paul says, I must also see Rome. The word must is consistently used as a word of, divinely, of divine necessity. I must see Rome. God was impelling him to, to go into other regions. And the reality is that Paul did see Rome. If you know the rest of the story, you know that Paul eventually got there, but not quite like he had originally envisioned. He got arrested in Jerusalem, detained in Caesarea for two years, and eventually, by way of shipwreck on Malta, got to Rome as a prisoner. We don't know whether or not he even got to Spain, another region that he wanted to get to. But Paul's plans, made, on, made in dependence of the Spirit, show us that we should seek the Lord for how he wants to use us for his purposes. But the outworking of those plans are ultimately under God's sovereign control. Even though the riot that took place in Ephesus we see God, the providential protection of Paul and the other believers. If it would have been up to Paul, this bold idiot, he would have said, come on, I'm going to go in. I need to talk. Here's the evangelism. This is a crusade. Billy Graham has got nothing on me. These are a bunch of angry pagans in need of the gospel. Let me go and share the good news. Justify why I'm here. But his friends are going, don't be an idiot. Don't go. And through faithful voices of brothers, other disciples. Paul listened. Because that was God's sovereign plan, that he would not go in there. Luke indicates that some, some, a somewhat obscure detail about a man named Alexander showed up and was given a hearing before the people. Alexander was probably put forward by the Jews to try to disassociate the Jews from the Christians. The Jews in Ephesus were against idolatry, of course. And they feared that the frenzied mob might launch a, a program against the Jews as well as the Christians in this situation. So they wanted Alexander to show the mob that the Jews were not the cause 
of their loss of business. But he never even got a chance. When he got recognized as a Jew, the whole crowd started uh, chanting for two hours, creating his artists of the Ephesians. It's kind of like, a, you ever seen those soccer games in Europe? Absolutely insane, frenzied mob. We don't know if the same Alexander is mentioned in other places in Paul's letter. This could have been even an opportunity for Alexander to be changed. But God did what? Protected Paul and the Ephesians church through the wise words of the town clerk who was comparable to the mayor. He was the one who would have had to answer to Rome for this riot. He assured the crowd that the greatness of Artemis was not in danger and that the two men they apprehended were not guilty of robbing the temple or blaspheming their goddess. He reminded them that there is a proper judicial process that they should use if there is actually a grievance. And he warned them of the consequences if Rome accused them of an unlawful assembly. This town had seen the power of Rome. The people heard that. And at that point, he goes, peace be with you. And the crowd did what? Disperse. Disperse. God cares for his church. Protects his church. I can't find the exact quote, but there's a theologian named T.W. Manson who said something like this. with us up these early disciples were completely fearless, outrageously happy, and constantly in trouble. Should I put my name in there? Because what Jesus Christ has done to me, done for me, done through me, done, is doing in me still yet today, can I say that I am completely fearless? Outrageously happy? The third one might be more true. Constantly in trouble. Is it true for you, for our church? Is there something about us that we are completely fearless of the repercussions of political powers or Whoever in our neighborhood or our workplace, we're completely fearless of them because we know, you know, ultimately God is in control of this. And there's something about our lives that is just absolutely outrageously happy. Not by the circumstances or I've got this or this or that and the other thing, but because there is a deep joy that is welling up inside of us. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me and is continuing to do in me, I am outrageously happy. That as I share the gospel, man, people are saying, hey, boss, you, you probably need to wake this guy up. He's, he's crossing over the church and state kind of stuff. Or, you know, he's sharing his faith in the workplace. Or, you know, getting a little too religious. We're constantly in trouble because, you know, there's a fearlessness and there's a joy that we have. And it is constantly, we're pushing against the forces of The story makes me ask, am I doing 
anything significant enough on behalf of God's kingdom to stir up the enemy's opposition. Are you doing anything significant enough on behalf of God's kingdom because of what has been done to you and through you and for you that you are stirring up the enemy's opposition? That doesn't mean that we go around looking for opportunities to tick off the authorities that are over us because we are even told in 1 Peter we are to do what? Submit to those authorities that God has given put put in place. We're called to do that. But is there something about our life that just naturally stirs up Satan's opposition? I realize that God gives the church seasons of peace. We see that in Acts 9.31. And I realize that these that the religion of freedom in our country assures us a certain amount of religious freedom from persecution. But I think we should also ponder G. Kevin uh, Campbell Morgan's words when he says this. Listen, I don't have a slide for this. The church persecuted has always been the church pure. And therefore, the church The church patronized has always been the church in peril. And very often, the church paralyzed. The church persecuted has always been the church pure. And therefore, the church powerful. The church patronized has always been the church in peril. And therefore, very often, the church paralyzed. Are we making an impact?
Some of us, idolatry, we just use our little brief conversation up here. Some of our idolatry, Cindy and I were talking about, we have idolatry of control. We've got control issues. And I like control, being in control of things. And I, I, this is a big thing for me. We like being in control of things more than we like God being sovereign. Some of us, we have issues of idolatry that we have bitterness in our life that I would much rather cling on to that is really another form of control issues. I want to be in control of this anger issue or this bitterness issue, and it is destroying you spiritually. And it's destroying your witness. Some of you, it is pornography. Some of you right now are starting, the light of Christ is starting to shine in, and you're going, stay away from my life. You are threatening everything. You have all degrees. And I pray that as believers, as you come to the table, you are honest before God, and your brothers and sisters in Christ, We haven't done this in a while. But if there's anything that doesn't need to be confessed, this is a scary thing. I remember some, we've done this a couple times, and all of a sudden, things just come out. Things that need to be confessed publicly, or maybe you need to do it privately, one-on-one. -on -one. But I'm giving you an opportunity now. And there may be absolutely silence which is fine, because God is ultimately the great witness of your soul. An opportunity to confess to You don't have to give stories.
first that you are good and that you are in control of all things and that you desire to control and protect and preserve your church and you even want your church to be a radiant spotless bride. God we know that this mystery is really a beautiful thing. How you are working with us as individuals and in us as corporate corporately as a church God, I pray on the Missio Day Church for our witness in this community as we gather and as we scatter. Lord, that the way that we live our lives is always in light of the gospel. That we are so being transformed by the gospel that, Lord, it just pours out. It becomes just radiant. Lord, that we corporately and individually as we gather and stand, we, that we become completely fearless because we truly trust you. And we know that you will always protect your church. So Lord, it immobilizes us to become fearless followers. Lord, that the gospel so deeply penetrates us and changes us that we become outrageously happy and joy because of the renewing work of the Spirit in our lives, making us more Christ-like. God, and I pray, and I'm not quite sure how to do this, Lord, that we would be a church constantly in trouble. That of our faithful gospel proclamation and our 
the way that we live our lives in light of the gospel, Lord, that it is pushing up against Satan's domain. That lives become new in Christ. The people die to their sins. They recognize their sin and their desire to become dependent on themselves. They die to that so that they may become alive in Christ. Lord, I pray for men and women here this morning who need the work of Jesus Christ in their lives. May they see that they are completely simple and completely hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. That there's no good teacher, there's no good book, there's no good shows, there's no good program that will fix the pain in their lives, the emptiness in their lives. The only thing that will heal them is repenting of their sins and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, we trust you to do your work this morning and Pray that we are not the church of our lives. We are the church powerful because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. The night that he was betrayed, same way he took the cup of blessing pouring it out he said this is my blood poured out for you do this those who are serving